This is the driest yet. Uh, the, the reservoirs, most of them are below 50% of their capacity. Uh, they just called for, uh, called it a disaster. Governor Brown declared it a disaster yesterday. Of course, declaring it a disaster doesn't create more water. All that does is get things ready to prepare for uh, how to deal with it, really, uh, because you can't manufacture water out of thin air. So, uh, while the East is getting blasted with a lot of cold this winter, we're having a very mild one by comparison. So, yeah, it's nice to have the, the good weather, but on the other hand, uh, that does come with a price. And we know from what we read last week that the cursings are coming on this nation, and they're coming very swiftly now. Uh, one after another, and intensifying as they come. So, uh, we know where it's all headed, of course, from the blessings and cursings we read about last week. Let's pick it up today in chapter 29, after he goes through those blessings and cursings and, and tells us that if we do not obey, we'll go into captivity again by ship. I think that's what they did the last time were taken from here over to uh, northern Africa and the Middle East and into Europe, and over time then migrated back over a period of many generations until God allowed the settlers to come back to this country in the 1600s. And we had a fresh start with Ephraim in this land. But now we've brought ourselves to the same position where we are about to go into captivity in the latter days, even as did they. So in chapter 29, after saying we'd go into captivity and no one would even want to buy us, that's how bad it'll be, he picks it up in chapter 29 by saying, These are the words of the covenant which the eternal uh, commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab, beside the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. So, he had made a covenant at Sinai, which is another name for Horeb, and here he was making yet another covenant with them. A covenant of blessing and cursing, a covenant that would lead to uh, no captivity and life being good, or another captivity. So, here just before they went into the promised land, they were in the land of Moab. Uh, as you'll recall, when Abraham and Lot got uh, so large in their peoples and in their animals and began to argue over grassland and so on, Abraham gave Lot his choice and he went east, uh, presumably across the Jordan, and Abraham stayed where he was. So that land east became known as Moab and Ammon, the uh, children of Lot through his daughters. So as they were poised to go back into the promised land now, they were on the Moab side of the Jordan. The Jordan ran north and south, uh, even as we have some north-south rivers here in this area that uh, probably one of them was originally the River Jordan. We'll leave that aside for the moment and move on into this. So, God says, this is 
another agreement or covenant I'm making with you. And Moses called unto all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Eternal did before your eyes to the land of Mitzrayim unto Pharaoh, and on all his servants, and to all his land. So he had decimated that land, destroyed that empire. They had seen it, witnessed it with their own eyes. Even some of it had touched them before they were brought out and a difference was made. So God wanted them to not only see and hear what was going on there, but he wanted them to feel a certain amount of it. Even as we are beginning to feel a certain amount of the restrictions and the captivity that we are in. The strictures are getting tighter. People are being arrested for lesser and letter, lesser issues. And the tasering and the handcuffing and the various things are getting more and more uh, common. So we see a clampdown occurring. And we are going to go through a certain amount of that before God makes a difference. I don't know how much, but that is the pattern of the past. And it isn't just a prediction, it's something we are here experiencing. So we have to do everything we can to break those bonds of Babylon that have been laid upon us as he says in Isaiah 52, to quit laying down and being walked upon, but to sit up and shake the bonds off. And I believe that we do need God's help to do that. He's already brought us and given us a place outside the greater influence of Babylon, but we still feel, to some degree, what is coming down. So they saw these things, experienced part of it, Verse 3, the great temptations which your eyes have seen, the signs and those great miracles, seven plagues coming down on sin, uh, which is depicted by Egypt or Mitzrayim in Scripture. Uh, interestingly, at the end of this age, just before Christ comes back to take over the earth, uh, we have the seven last plagues again. This time they're on the whole satanic System, the whole system of sin. And everyone will have felt it. Verse 4, Yet the Eternal has not given you a heart to perceive, and eyes to see, and ears to hear to this day. After what they had seen, that allowed them to come out of captivity, the death of the firstborn as the last act, their own preservation, their own deliverance, the incredible parting of the Red Sea and passing over on dry land and the sea crashing in on Pharaoh and his armies, followed by murmuring and complaining and 40 years of wandering. And even that had miracles of manna and quail and yet they still didn't get the picture. That's incredible, is it not? That after all they went through, they still didn't perceive. They didn't grasp with their eyes, their ears, 
what really had transpired. That's almost unbelievable. That is, unless we fast forward to today. God had built up a work that became a worldwide work. We became spiritually complacent, and he began to scatter it and bring spiritual plagues upon the church so that spiritual famine, pestilence, and captivity took away most of the church, and now it is scattered and still suffering. God lays it out in the Scriptures exactly what would happen here in the end time. And it has. And people still do not perceive. They do not have the eyes to see, the ears to hear, or the perception and understanding to know what has occurred. And each group still thinks, for the most part, that they are the only true Philadelphians and everybody else's Laodiceans, but we're A-OK, which is the attitude of Laodicea in Revelation 3, as I read at the very end last week. So it's easy to look at those people and say, come on, why couldn't you see all you had been through and all that had happened? Why didn't you wake up? Why didn't you serve God with all your heart, with all your soul, so you wouldn't go into the promised land and go into captivity again? You guys are stupid, we can sit here and say. How calloused, how hard-headed, how stiff-necked and rebellious you were, and unable to see what was happening to you and why, after all God's warnings. So here we are today, after more history, more captivities, more warnings, we have a whole weight of history far beyond what these people Moses was talking to that day had. We have seen more times that these things have occurred. And when they crossed that river shortly after Moses gave this speech, they went in, quickly adapted the gods of the people around them. And by the time Joshua died, they had pretty well given it all up and gone back into paganism and had to go into captivity just as predicted. So we have that history on top of this history that we're reading. And here we came into America with a new start, like they were about to get. And how long did it take us? It didn't take long, brethren. It really didn't. There were some who kept the Sabbath, who would not keep Christmas and Easter, who attempted to keep God's holy days among those who first arrived on these shores as a permanent settlement in Rhode Island and scattered through a few of the colonies. And it was not long until the forces of evil under Satan took over. So that by the time of the Revolutionary War, our leaders, those that we look upon as the patriarchs of our country, who founded this country, founded it upon Roman 
and Greece, customs, government, architecture, habits, and Masonic, Rosicrucian, and on and on and on it goes. Jesuit principles. Even the, gov- even the buildings in our own capital are of those periods. The layout is completely satanic and pagan in that triangle or that uh, city of Washington, D.C. Not part of this country. It's a totally separate entity. So those men that we, in our history, have revered as we grew up in school, founded this not on godly principles, really, but upon Greek and Roman democratic principles, which are contrary to the way God rules. Those might be fighting words in some places. There was still a certain amount of credence given to the Bible at that time, and the Constitution does guarantee certain liberties and freedoms, which have been guaranteed but now are being poo-pooed almost everywhere. And our nation has gone the way of Satan, and we're about to be taken into captivity again. So here we stand. We, the church, having gone through a spiritual captivity and about to be regathered to finish God's work, 10% of us at least, what 10% God will stir, and I don't know who they are. They're scattered throughout. But the nation itself is about to go into the final captivity. We're already in it, but we're about to go into the death throes of it. Let's put it that way. Very, very few people in the church, even to this point, perceive what we have been through. And very, very few, a very small minority of the American people perceive what is about to happen to this land. Very few. The number is slowly growing, but it's still very, very minuscule. So he goes on after saying, You have eyes and ears, but you don't see or hear. I have led you forty years in the wilderness... Your clothes are not waxed old upon you. Your shoe is not waxed old upon your foot. You have not eaten bread, neither have you drunk wine or strong drink, that you might know that I am the Eternal, your God. So what they had remained good. I'll bet you have to change clothes and shoes more than every 40 years. They didn't have to. So even though they were being punished, chastened, tried and tested, God still loved them. God still cared about them. He still did things that would cause you to say, there is a God. But they wouldn't turn to Him. Even when they had plenty to eat, they just complained about not having variety. Anyway... Verse 7, And when you came to this place, Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us to battle, and we smote them. Some of those people were giants as well. We took their land and gave it for an inheritance to the Reubenites, to the Gadites, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh. You'll remember the story that instead of crossing the Jordan, those tribes, and part of Manasseh, stayed on the east side. 
and said, let us take this as our inheritance. So that was granted. Nine, keep therefore the words of this covenant and do them that you may prosper in that all that you do. So then he starts talking more about it. He mentions this covenant down again in verse 14. Verse 10, anyway, you stand this day, all of you, before the eternal your God, your captains of your tribes, your elders, your officers, with all the men of Israel. Had a very strong government organization in that day. Verse 11, not only the leaders, but your little ones, your wives, the stranger that is in your camp, from the hewer of your wood to the drawer of your water. So they had servants, they had slaves yet, perhaps some mixed multitude that had come with them from Mitzrayim. Verse 12, so he says, you're all here. All of you are here. That you should enter into the co- into covenant with the eternal your God and into his oath, which the eternal your God makes with you this day. So God was going to make an oath, a vow, a promise to them on that day. And they were to accept that and live by it. Verse 13, that he may establish you today for a people to himself, and that he may be to you a God, as he has has said to you, and as he has sworn to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Now, God had to fulfill his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He had to make them as the sands of the sea and the stars of the heavens, as he had said he would. So he was compelled by his own word, by his own promises, to do that. And here he sets about fulfilling it. But he's dealing with these people who were about to enter into a promised land, be blessed, and humanly begin to forget God. So he gives this stern warning to all. God was separating them, sorting them out, setting them aside to be a special people to him. What an incredible thing that out of all the peoples on the earth, God would select them, redeem them from the world, redeem them from their enemies, set them aside as a particular or bought people, and give them the blessings of Almighty God. Wow! You'd think they would have just done backflips. How wonderful it was to be put in those circumstances by the Creator of the universe. God has done that for us. The New Testament uses the same words. He set us aside, set us apart, sanctified us, which means set apart, redeemed us with the blood of the Lamb, given us an opportunity to be the called out ones from the world to carry Christ's message to all the world, ultimately, before this ends, and to build his temple, to follow his wishes, to obey him and serve him with all our hearts. What a wonderful thing that is. What an opportunity we have. How easy it is to criticize these people who didn't do 
something when God himself gave them opportunity. That will not be us, will it? That will not be us. It won't. We will respond, will we not? We will love God with all our hearts. We will obey Him with all our beings. Heart, mind, body, and soul. We will commit to God, won't we? We won't be as these stiff-necked, backsliding, rebellious Israelites who rejected Moses, who rejected Abraham, who rejected David, who rejected the apostles, and on and on it goes. We won't be those. Somebody must make a stand. Ten percent of those called will respond. God says some will make a stand. I want us to be part of that, brethren. Each one here. Let us not fail. Let us have hearts of flesh that can be touched, that can be loved, that can be entreated, that can be encouraged and inspired, that can be strengthened and empowered, and their fears removed and move forward. That's where we must be. Fear not. Be of good courage. Be strong and work. We'll see those words again very soon here in this context, even as we see them in Isaiah and Haggai and other places. So he set a covenant there, and he's offered us a covenant to set us aside for a special use for the whole world. Verse 14, neither with you only do I make this covenant and this oath. So he says, I'm making this covenant here in Moab, not just with you. They were all assembled. Everybody was there. He said, I'm not making this just with you. Who is he going to make it with then? Those who died in the wilderness? They're already dead. Couldn't make it with them. Verse 15, But with him that stands here with us this day, before the Eternal our God, and also with him that is not here with us this day. Now, who was not with them there that day that he could make a covenant with? Those who would follow. It has to be talking about those who came later. That this covenant would cover them as well. Not just those people standing there, but those he would make it with later on. The ones who were already dead were gone. Now he'll make a covenant with them, yes, in the great white throne judgment. But as they were poised to go into the promised land, so were others later, and so are we now. Our great-great-great-grandfathers came into this land of promise after having left it for many, many generations. 
God allowed them to come back, and they messed it all up with our help. And then God began to call a few out. And he said, this generation will not pass until these things come to pass. All of us old people aren't going to die off before this happens. Take heart, young people, because we're getting there, us old ones. It's got to happen before all those who saw worldwide at its best, spiritually, fall apart. Some of us will remain. So he's making it with future people. We'll see, he talks about latter days down here before this book ends. Verse 16, For you know how we have dwelt in the land of Mitzrayim, and how we came through the nations which you passed by, and how they didn't destroy them, take advantage of them. And you have seen their abominations, their idols, of wood and stone, silver and gold, which were among them. Haven't we grown up in this country and seen the gods of materialism? the things that have been manufactured that are worshipped as much as something that was strictly produced as an idol to bow down before. We bow down before materialism. We've seen it. Hopefully, we've matured enough that those things are no longer our goal and our purpose, but treasures in heaven are now our goal and purpose. Treasures on earth, as Christ said, rotten or stolen, and you can't take them with you. But when you die, if you have treasure in heaven, it'll be there at the time of resurrection, and you'll receive crowns. So this isn't about materiality today, it's about treasures in heaven. We've seen what a materialistic, idol-worshipping society has produced. And it's falling apart before our very eyes. Verse 17, and you have seen... Oh, we've read that. Verse 18, Lest there should be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away this day from the eternal our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Lest there should be among you a root that bears gall and wormwood. It says, if some of you become bitter, you have resentment, negativity, poisoned attitudes. He warns about that. Those things are just as true today as ever they were. People don't see the positive side. They don't see what God can and will do. And they get hung up on personalities. They get hung up on personal beliefs. They get hung up on pride and ego and selfishness. And then they begin to get bitter and have resentment. And first thing you know, God's Spirit cannot operate in that kind of climate. And they turn further and further from Him and from His way until they disappear. That has happened to a lot of people post-worldwide Church of God, and it's still happening to many. And it will continue, because we take our eyes off God and put them on 
whatever else we put them on, and then gall and wormwood appear. And it come to pass, when he hears the words of this curse, that he bless himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart, to add drunkenness to thirst. So there will be, where he said there would be those who would turn aside and say, I'm too good for you, this place isn't peaceful enough, speaking of the church, or this particular branch of the church, I will go elsewhere and I will have peace, and I will stubbornly stick to my own ideas. Scary business. Do we not have faith in God that he is capable of bringing us truth? And even through men? They had problems with Moses. They had problems with Aaron. When it came to the New Testament, even with the Holy Spirit available, they had problems with Paul. Paul said that certain ones gave him great trouble and grief and misery. And so on and on it goes. For whatever reason, you know, there wasn't really that much wrong with Paul, Peter, James, John, Jude. But a great falling away ensued anyway. God had appointed those men. Christ had trained them individually and specifically and put them in those positions. And yet... Ultimately, a majority of the church turned their backs on the original apostles trained by Christ himself. How could that be? Like with these people, God had taken Moses, trained him specifically for a job that he had to do. The people rejected Moses, and by rejecting Moses, they rejected God. He trained from childhood uh, Samuel, and then the people, after God's specific training, rejected Samuel from his influence over them. And God said, they haven't rejected you, Samuel, they've rejected me. So, if God, in the past, has specifically trained certain ones, why is it that people reject them and, in so doing, reject the God who trained them? Herbert Armstrong, I think, is another good example of that. God called him out, taught him the Sabbath, taught him the holy days, began to give him the truth, put him through trials, troubles, tribulations, tests, chastened him at times, put him through the ringer and individually trained him to raise up a work in the end time. And yet people, some, began to look for loose bricks, began to look for faults, began to look for past sins, began to look for anything they could find to discredit him. Some of them wrote books about how bad he was. They became turned off, rebellious, negative, selfish, 
and rejected the one whom God trained and sent here to teach them his ways. And with a pretty good number of people, they rejected him. And upon his death, most of the church rejected everything that they had ever learned under Herbert Armstrong, walked away from the Sabbath, from the holy days, from clean and unclean, from understanding what Christmas and Easter and all those things were all about. Allegedly, we had all proved the truth. And those were basic, concrete, foundational, biblical, doctrinal truths. And yet, the majority of the church went right back into paganism, following those leaders who rejected the truth. Went right back to Babylonian, pagan, so-called Christianity. How could that be? That they got so turned off, at the truth, that they simply rejected it and turned away because of character flaws, sins, problems that Herbert Armstrong might have had or didn't have but were alleged, and because of maybe their background as they grew up, Protestantism was an easy way to go back. I don't know. Don't know all the whys and wherefores, and some of them are individually based. But there's a warning here. Most of the church must not have come back here and read it. Thankfully, we can, and we still have hope in that we're here, and that we're listening to these words, and that it can mean something to us. But what has been, will be. There's nothing new under the sun. I think we could safely say that when they rejected Herbert Armstrong and the doctrines and teachings that he presented to the church, they rejected God. God is training, right now, a final ministry to go to the world as a witness. Somewhere, some way, somehow, he's been at it for some time. I am quite sure. And you know what's going to happen? Ninety percent of the church is going to reject them. Ninety percent of what remains will reject them. Only ten percent will be stirred and respond to come and serve God. What an incredible thing that is. Makes you wonder if we've ever learned anything. I mean, from Adam till today. What have we learned? God sets this out in the Bible in every historical period of people he has worked with. A few respond out of each age. Not many, but a few. By the time he gets to the end of this whole thing, 144,000 will have responded with heart, mind, body, and soul. That's all. Out of what? They estimate 50, 60 billion since Adam and Eve. 144,000. 
who have accepted and separated themselves from the world and worship God with their whole heart and are found acceptable with the proper spiritual clothing as brides of Christ. There's still hope for you and me. We've survived so far. The famine, pestilence, and sword that has spiritually come upon the church, have we not? And he said when that happens, we have to get rid of the Laodiceanism, the self-righteousness, the nakedness, blindness, and wretchedness, and repent and turn to God with our whole heart and overcome and grow. And we will be included. So, we can look at the preponderance of people and say, they failed. I choose not to do that. I choose to look at the ones who have succeeded. I like Hebrews 11 a whole lot more than I like some of the stuff we're reading. I like that list of people who did respond to God and who will be there in the first resurrection. I like to look at the apostles who gave their physical lives for what they believed and will be heads of the tribes of Israel and the world tomorrow. Let's look at some of the successes. If we look at failures, they're all around us, and they could even be us. But somehow we have to focus on the positive, on success, upon those who did do what God said. That's why Paul wrote Hebrews 11. Let's accentuate the positive. Forget or eliminate the negative, as the song went, and don't mess with Mr. In-Between, if you remember far enough back or have heard that song. It's the messing with Mr. In-Between that caused us so much trouble. Hot nor cold. Lay it a sin. They can write songs, but the church messed with Mr. In-Between. And here we are today, scattered, fractured, barely surviving. But to each and every one of us, God has said, overcome, and you will wear the crowns in Revelation 2 and 3. So let's look at the positive side. Look at what God can do, not what man cannot do. Did Herbert Armstrong fail in some ways in his life? You bet he did. Did he have some problems? Yes, he did. I was around him for several years. Saw him almost daily. Did he have pride, ego, vanity? Did he think of himself sometimes? Yeah. Was he also humble and meek? And ready to help and encourage and strengthen everybody any time he got a chance? Yes, he was. Did he stick to the truth? Yes, he did. Did he understand all of it? No, he did not. But enough of it to get us launched on a path toward the kingdom of God. God used that man. I don't care what the detractors have to say. 
He used Moses too. But Moses had his problems. And he went up on the mountain to die instead of going into the physical promised land because of one unguarded moment when he struck instead of spoke to the rock. Water still came out. God still was behind him and honored him. God still led the people through that wilderness by him. wasn't perfect. You know what? Moses didn't go into that promised land, but he's going into the kingdom of God, the real promised land. He was God's friend. Even God's best friends make mistakes. We have to recognize and realize that. And make allowance for one another. That's what God's love is all about. God so loved the sinners of the world that he sent his only begotten Son. All of us, brethren, fall short. But God loves us enough that if we grow and overcome, even though we may not achieve perfection in this human temple. The blood of Christ and the grace of God will make up the difference. And we can be in that eternal kingdom, peace and happiness of God. Now this was a physical covenant back here, but it carried promises. Now he's given us his Holy Spirit in the end time that we might have not only better promises, but better opportunity. Some qualified in the early New Testament church, even though there was a great falling away, and though they despised the apostles and the leadership that God had sent. We'll have the same thing here in the end time. But some will come through. Some will set aside the failings of men and see the hand of God. Ten percent. Which will you be in? The ninety percent who go into the tribulation or the ten percent who respond? That will soon be determined. But if we, through stubbornness or whatever, excuse ourselves, bless ourselves in our own heart, And don't pay attention. God says in verse 20, The Eternal will not spare him, but then the anger of the Eternal and his jealousy shall smoke against that man, and all the curses that are written in this book shall lie upon him. And the Eternal shall blot out his name from under heaven. And the Eternal shall separate him unto evil out of all the tribes of Israel according to all the curses of the covenant that are written in this book of the law. So that the generation to come of your children that shall rise up after you and the strangers that shall come from a far land shall say, when they see the plagues of that land and the sickness which the Eternal is laid upon it, and that the whole land thereof is brimstone and salt and burning, that it is not sown nor bears 
nor any grass grows therein like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the eternal overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. Even all nations shall say, Wherefore has the eternal done this to this land? What means the heat of this great anger? We may see some of the remnants of that right here in this area. Bonneville Salt Flats, the Great Salt Lake, the Little Salt Lake up here north of Cedar City, the whole Great Basin area that has turned into desolation. Are we seeing the results of what God did to the Promised Land? There's by far more of it here than there is in the Middle East. Verse 25, Then men shall say, Because they have forsaken the covenant of the eternal God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them forth out of the land of Mitzrayim. For they went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they knew not and whom he had not given to them. And the anger of the eternal was kindled against this land to bring upon it all the curses that are written in this book. And we know that in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and other places, he said the land would be desolate for many generations, and that Jerusalem and that area right around it would not have inhabitants for all that time. Verse 28, And the Eternal rooted them out of their land in anger and in wrath and in great indignation and cast them into another land as it is this day. The secret things belong to the Eternal our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So he says, God has some things that are secret, but he's revealed his knowledge, who he is, to us. Not many people on the face of this earth today understand truly who God is. Very few do. And he's told us in Isaiah that there are some things that have always been so that we can't say, oh, I knew that ahead of time. But he also says there are some secret things that will be revealed right here in the end time that we don't even have a clue about yet said the same thing back here through Moses. Let's get into chapter 30. And it shall come to pass, when all these things are come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you shall call them to mind among all the nations where the eternal your God has driven you. It was a foregone conclusion that they would not obey God and accept blessing but they would disobey, turn from him, and be cursed and go into captivity. And he said, when you find yourself there, remember this covenant. We as a church have found ourselves there. It's time to remember this covenant and repent. Our nation finds itself going there head over heels, pell-mell, right now. Would to God they would remember this covenant, but they will not. Jeremiah said, don't even pray for them. They won't listen. You're just wasting your breath. Do you see a resurgence of people in this nation right now truly seeking God with all their heart? I don't. 
I see them seeking materiality and entertainment and comfort. I don't see them seeking God. Will our nation repent? No, not until after the seven last plagues, when less than 10% remain. But he says, when you wake up and find yourself in this, verse 2, and shall return to the eternal your God, and shall obey his voice according to all that I command you this day, that you and your children, uh, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul. How many times have we said that? right here from the speaker's stand, echoed in Jeremiah, here in Deuteronomy, all through the Bible. That's all God has ever wanted, was for people to turn to Him with all their heart and with all their soul. It's all He requires. It's all He's ever asked. And we woke up in it. None of us suspected the church was going to go through what it has been through, did we? I have not seen or heard of anyone in the church who predicted what was about to happen. None. We saw it afterward. And 90-some percent of the church still do not know what has happened or why or what to do about it. They blame it on the devil. They blame it on the Laodiceans or Herbert Armstrong or somebody. Rarely do you come across anyone who blames it upon himself. You, I, are the only ones who can do anything about what has transpired. And we here in this room can do nothing about each other. We can only do something about ourselves. We individually have to get on our knees and seek God with all our heart. I can't make you do it. I can lead you to water. I can't make you drink. I can tell you, but you have to do it. I can stand here and say it, but I have to do it, because our judgment will be an individual judgment by God the Father and His Son. Thankfully, they love us, but they did say, you got to overcome to enter into the kingdom of God. But if we'll turn with all our heart and with all our soul, we will succeed and we will be there. He's told it to every generation by whoever was the leader, whoever was imparting the knowledge of God, whether it was priest or prophet, king or minister. He's always done it that way. Verse 3, that then the eternal your God will turn away your captivity and have compassion upon you and will return and gather you from all the nations where the eternal your God has scattered you. And this just is an ancient history again. He's promised us the same thing in Haggai and Zechariah and all through Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel and the minor prophets. 
If any of you be driven out into the uttermost parts of heaven, from there will the eternal your God gather you, and from there will he fetch you. And the eternal your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it, and he will do you good and multiply you above your fathers. Do we believe it? Do we believe those scriptures where God said Jerusalem would be desolate for many generations and that he will bring his church into that land and give it to them here in the end and bless them beyond all people? The scriptures are there. And the eternal your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your seed, to love the eternal your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live eternally for us. And the eternal your God will put all these curses upon your enemies and on them that hate you, which persecuted you. And you shall return and obey the voice of the eternal and do all his commandments, which I command you this day. There's going to be a repentance. And the eternal your God will make you plenteous in every work of your hand, in the fruit of your body, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of the land, for good. For the eternal will again rejoice over you, for good is rejoiced over your fathers. So there they were going in, being warned, and Moses saying, you're not going to do it, and you'll go into captivity again, but if you will repent there... I will still forgive and still bring you out and bless you. How merciful God is. Verse 10, If you hearken to the voice of the Eternal, your God, to keep His commandments and His statutes, which are written in this book of the law, and if you turn to the Eternal, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul. He repeats it again, and I read it again. For this commandment which I command you this day, it is not hidden from you, neither is it far off. We know, don't we? What I'm telling you and what we read every week here isn't really new to us, is it? It's not something that I brought in from China yesterday by freight. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it to us, that we may hear it and so do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who shall go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near to you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. You know the truth. God did provide a man who brought us the truth. not like we had to have a seance to find it or go to the moon to get it. He brought it to us. He opened our mind to it. And then people have slammed the door on it just like that because of personal feelings, because of somebody else's sins, because of whatever emotionally turns us off. You know, human beings are prone to live by their emotions. And they will forsake the very truth of God to satisfy their particular emotional state. We've seen it happen in the Church of God in the last 25 years. 
where people will turn and walk away from the truth because of Herbert Armstrong's problem or a local minister's problem or the deacon's problem or whatever. They get in an emotional state and their emotions take over and they walk away from God and walk away from the truth of God. You wouldn't think that could happen. With the mind of God, it wouldn't. But with carnal, human, emotional reactions, it has, did then, and still does. So he says, verse 15, See, I have set before you this day life and good, death and evil. Made it about as plain as I can make it, he says. And that I command you this day to love the eternal your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply. So see, here he even says, this isn't just an emotional thing with God in us. It's not just an emotional thing with his church in us. Turning to God with our whole heart means that we turn to his ways. His commandments, His statutes, His judgments. We follow His ways. We do what He says because we do love Him. Now, if we go only by emotion, which is what most churches are set up by, our emotions can get hurt. Our feelings can get hurt in a multitude of ways. And then we are not spiritually mature enough to bring those emotions under control and turn to God and His way with our heart. You see, you demonstrate your love to God by your works, by doing what He says, living His way. And you also come to have the same emotions God has, okay? We cannot get away entirely from the fact that people are highly influenced by their own emotions. The problem we have is that our emotions are so often humanly based upon lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, envy, pride, and all those things. Selfishness. And when anybody hurts our empirical self, in whatever form that may be, we get our feelings hurt. We become negative. Now, God is not like that, brethren. His mercy endures forever. He says right here, He will be very, very quick to forgive us and think well of us if we change our approach. He's very positive. God is full of love, joy, peace, happiness, good emotions. His anger is like the morning dew. It dissipates very quickly. He does not hold grudges. He does not stay in negative attitudes. He clears the air. In his kingdom, there will be no sorrow, no pain, no tears, no fighting. No negativity. 
It just isn't the way he thinks. He controls his emotions. He does not have the negative side. To God, the, the glass is always at least half full. Always! Always! Even when mankind is at his worst, God says, I'll bring you up in the great white throne judgment, and it's all going to turn out good. All Israel will be saved. How many times has he condemned Israel in this book for our sins? And his church for our sins? And yet he'll just wipe it all away and give everyone that has walked on the face of this earth from Adam down to the end of the millennium a chance. One valid, true, good chance under wonderful conditions, most of them, to serve God and succeed. Ah, that we had the attitude of God. Now what did he tell us? Let this mind be in you that was also in our Savior, that is in our Father, who loved the sinners on this earth so much that he gave his only begotten Son that they might not perish but have eternal life. Now there's love. That's the kind of love we need to exhibit one to another. If we don't have it, we need to pray for it. We need to come to think like God. Many of our problems, right here, would go away if we controlled our emotions and reacted as God does instead of the way our carnal minds and feelings do. It's simply a matter of spiritual growth in each and every one of us so that our reactions become godly. That's what we need to achieve. That's what holds us back. Have the very mind of God. Verse 17, But if your heart turn away so that you will not hear, but shall be drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, whatever we get between us and God... And our relationship with him is an idol. And self is the biggest idol of all. We put ourselves ahead of God, his commandments, his ways, his way of thinking, his mentality, and his emotions. And cling to ours stubbornly, religiously. We cling to our attitudes, our attitudes toward him and our attitudes toward others. And then... All too often, people walk away. I denounce to you this day that you shall surely perish, and that you shall not prolong your days upon the land where you shall pass over Jordan to go to possess it. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you. This is quite a witness here. That I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, curse God and die. As Job's loving sweet wife told him to do. It wasn't God's attitude. She didn't have a godly attitude. 
God said, I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choose life. He's very positive. He gives some good advice there. That both you and your seed may live. That you may love the eternal your God, and that you may obey his voice, and that you may cleave to him. For he is your life and the length of your days that you may dwell in the land which the eternal swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. We are about to go into that promised land again. And God has given us the opportunity to live there forevermore in the kingdom of God. Now, there's a couple more times that that will happen. This isn't the last time. We're the first ones that are going to be allowed to go back if we respond in this way and choose life. And then at the beginning of the millennium, another gathering will occur to the promised land. And then the great white throne judgment, the great and final gathering to the promised land. So God is giving each opportunity in their own order. And we can be first. We're poised to go there now. Let's not fail. Let us choose life.